What will you do without freedom? That's the best I got. This is the question you may have heard. William Wallace calling out to a scared, intimidated army of Scotsmen standing before a sea of English soldiers on the Battle of Stirling Bridge in the 13th century, recreated, I think, pretty well in the film Braveheart a number of years ago. The odds seemed overwhelming, and they had already suffered many hardships at this point, but what Wallace saw at this moment in history was it's a truly pivotal moment in the whole struggle for Scottish independence, one that could either secure a unified mission for years to come or see the whole movement fade into history. So Wallace's whole aim was to remind these men here and now, who were basically ready to just punt the ball and go home, to, say, to not abandon the freedom that they were so desperate to gain from English tyranny, and to do everything they could this day so that generations from now could still enjoy the same freedom that they all hoped to attain. We've been following along uh, in our series through Acts with this pioneer movement called The Way that began with just 11 guys in an upper room and has expanded now at this point to thousands of people, shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. I mean, they've experienced blessings and hardships as well. But at every point, Jesus has been faithful to build his church just like he promised he would. And yet now, not unlike that day on the battlefield at Stirling Bridge, the church has come to this really significant turning point. One that could either see a united mission within the church for years to come or watch the whole movement fade into history. See, the whole nature of the gospel itself is freedom. It's freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin and the law and freedom to adoption and being witnesses of Jesus Christ. That, that freedom had been under attack from all kinds of different places, religious rulers, political leaders, but each time the church had come under this common goal of preserving that freedom from these outside pressures. And yet now, what we see in our passage today is that the attack is coming not from the outside, but from the inside. Peter... Paul, Barnabas, and James have the critical task of reminding the church, in this case, not of a freedom that they hope to attain, but of a freedom they already have, not to surrender it, not to give it up and return to a yoke of trying to earn freedom through observing the law, trying to go back basically to slavery. That's their whole goal and task in this council at Jerusalem. So hopefully you can see why this is so significant. This council that comes together, trying to understand what's going on in the life of this pioneer church with this new inclusion now of Gentiles. But the reason it's so important for us to look at this today as well is because, sadly, as long as we live in a broken world, a world still stained and touched by sin, these attacks and pressures, either to change the gospel or even limit gospel freedom, are only going to continue. They're not going to be done as long as we continue to live in this world. And so, in one sense, that's why it's so critical what we looked at last week about the expectations of trials in the Christian life. It helps us not to be surprised when we see these attacks coming, but I think it also helps us to see that 
those attacks, when they come, what we're seeing here is that they may not always come from the outside. They may also come from within. So we need to be diligent. We need to be careful today about preserving the gospel freedom that we already have in Jesus. The task is no less critical for us today. And within a generation, we could too see Christianity as we know it completely vanish head underground. We know from the scriptures that we'll never truly die. And yet, we could absolutely drop the ball if we don't seek to guard this same gospel freedom in our own lives today and in our church. So, to help us learn from the experience of this pioneer church what preserving gospel freedom looks like, why it's so important, I want to look at our passage this morning in three ways. I want to show you a call to gospel purity, a call to gospel freedom, and then finally a, go- a call to gospel community. Those things, a call to gospel purity, freedom, and community. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts 15? Follow along with me as we look now at preserving gospel freedom. Right, let's begin by looking at a call to gospel purity. A call to gospel purity. Now this whole event is introduced to us here in verse one, look with me there. We read, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, where they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's important we stop, pause for just a second, and realize what's really being said here. We need clarity as to what their claim actually is. This is not about uh, uh, arguing about preferences, people saying, Hey, you know what? I really like modern worship songs, and I like hymns. That's not what's going on here. These guys, these men from Judea are teaching in this church at Antioch that the Gentiles, if they're not circumcised, if they're not taught to obey the law of Moses, basically if they don't become Jewish converts, they're not saved. Whatever you think you've seen, they're not our brothers unless they do this stuff. It's a staggering claim, which, you know, unsurprisingly, it brings uh, a dispute, brings uh, Paul and Barnabas are like right in there like, no, wait a minute, they're dealing with this right away, and it sets off this whole chain of events that we see now in the church at Antioch and then back at the head office in Jerusalem here. Now, right off the bat, what I love, I love the fact that although they, there's this theological disagreement, they have it, rather than just shutting down, shutting each other down, they talk about it. They talk about it. They uh, uh, discuss, debate, they, they search the scriptures, they pray. And then when they can't figure it out in this Antioch church, they're like, well, we need more help. They don't just say, well, I guess we're not going to know. They continue to press on to say, let's find agreement on this. Let's figure out what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. So they get outside help. The point is, whatever, differences of opinion in the church, even today, even significant ones, they should be opportunities to still discuss, to listen to pray and search God's word together. Why? Because Jesus said one of the defining characteristics of his church, John 13, 35, to a watching world is that they would know we are Christians, they would know we are Jesus' followers by our love for one another. Are they seeing that? Well, I'll tell you, even in here, even though they have this sharp debate and dispute that we read about there in verse 2, we see brotherly love still being demonstrated in the way they seek to resolve this difference. Now, we don't get the whole transcript, actually. It sounds like this was a much longer event. We don't get the whole transcript of the deliberations here in 
Jerusalem, as they seek to come to an agreement about Gentile inclusion in the church and what is and isn't required. But what we do see in verses 7 through 21 here, Luke highlights four main speakers that come together to seek to preserve gospel purity. You've got Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James. They're all committed to preserving gospel purity that would guard against either the addition of anything to the gospel or, and I guess, also the subtraction of anything, changing the gospel in any way. But what's interesting is that they're here to guard gospel purity, but not that long ago, even with all the stuff that they were seeing God do amongst the Gentiles, the way the Spirit was being poured out, Peter and Barnabas, their gospel purity wasn't always quite there. It wasn't always quite so pure. If you look at what Paul says in Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, which is a letter written before what we have in the book of Acts here, he's basically describing what we saw in verse 1 of our passage, these men coming down from Judea. But listen to what Paul says here. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Listen, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, this is those men from Judea, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So basically what's going on here, Peter comes down from Antioch to hang out with uh, Paul and Barnabas, see what's going on, support them. But then this, this group comes down, this group called the Circumcision Party, which as you've got to say is another horrible name for a group. It sounds like the Root Canal Party. When they come, they begin to put pressure on the church to add these preconditions to the gospel. We see that Peter and Barnabas, they both get caught up in the flow. Peter gets caught up and he starts drawing everyone else away with him so that now, although they freely used to eat with the Gentiles, no problem, these are my brothers, we're eating together. Now they're picking up their plates and moving over to the Jewish table. Uh, you know what, sorry guys, I just, uh, I got to discuss something. They're clearly separating themselves now. Well, Paul sees this going on. He's not having any of it. I mean, what's funny is that he doesn't say, hey guys, you're being mean. You're hurting the Gentiles' feelings. Nor does he say, you two are breaking the no racism law. No, what does he say? Very next verse, Paul's rebuke is, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. You're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Racism, uh, a racial segregation, uh, a racial superiority, all these things are, are antithetical. They're not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's why they're wrong. The truth of the gospel is the, is the removal of divisions of any kind between us. And so he says to them, you're not in line with the truth of the gospel. And what, Although Paul is relatively new, he's relatively new to this church family, he just gets up, publicly rebukes Peter in front of everyone. Look, he says, uh, if you, you're a Jew, but yet if you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it then you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, we'll come back to this in a minute, referring to uh, these circumcision and dietary laws as Jewish customs, because that's going to be key to this whole idea of Jewish 
uh, uh, inclusion of the Gentiles into the church family. That's what they're discussing here at this Jerusalem council. But what that means is that that, that rebuke, Paul's rebuke of these guys, his guarding of gospel purity, that's why when we come to Acts 15 now, Peter and Barnabas, they're back on board now. They get it now. They're back in line with the truth of the gospel, and that's why they're arguing for this gospel purity and encouraging the church to do the same thing. If you look at Peter's speech in verses uh, 17, or sorry, 7 through 11, he's basically reciting the very same things that Paul said to him when he called him out back in Antioch. Even going so far, look at verse 10. Why do you try to test God? That, that, that language of testing is the very same language he used back in Acts 4 when he was rebuking Sapphira for holding back some of the money that she was uh, giving to the church and not giving the whole amount. Acts 5, thank you. He, he used the very same term. Why would you put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? He's saying here, by trying to put this yoke of slavery on the Gentiles, you're putting God to the test again. Here's why this is so important for us to look at today. First of all, what we're seeing here from Peter, Paul, these, these other brothers is while addressing the, the subject of Gentile inclusion in the church, what we're really seeing them do fundamentally is give us a call to gospel purity. They're giving us a call to gospel purity because think about it. If what they're arguing for is a salvation by faith alone apart from the law, that doesn't only affect Gentile inclusion in the church, does it? It affects their own inclusion. It matters for both of them if this is a, a pure gospel message that's not about earning at all. So it shows us that preserving gospel unity and gospel purity, it's important for both sides, for those that we want to share the gospel with and those that have already been saved by it. Second thing we see from Acts, we see how important it is to speak up. We see how important it is to talk, to, to lovingly come to one another when we see the gospel being added to. Peter and Barnabas were called back to a gospel purity in Galatians 2 there because Paul was willing to speak up when he saw them getting off track. He wasn't just like, well, I don't want to offend them. I haven't been here that long. He understood gospel purity is something we all need. We need to guard it. We need that because it's one of the reasons why we see God has saved us into a family and not just individual saved people because we need each other. We need each other to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable in living this Christian life. Along with that, we see, thirdly, none of us, even Jesus, one of his most closest inner circle of disciples, is immune from getting the gospel wrong, even once we've been saved by it. This is a, a, a call to all of us. I think myself, even as a, as a leader in this church, I read this and I think, how important is it that I don't add to the gospel lest, like Peter, I lead a whole church of people away to believing a false gospel. So I need this to see how I need this accountability. You know what? It's one of the reasons, maybe you get tired of doing it, but it's one of the reasons why we read our church covenant every month because that's, this is what we need from each other. We need to be willing to be accountable to one another. I want to live like Jesus, so I'm asking you to hold me accountable to that. You want to live like Jesus, so we agree to hold each other accountable and encourage each other. That's what we're seeing happen in the church family here. We've talked about this a few times already this past week, but what we need to remember again is that 
this returning to works righteousness, returning to self-salvation is always going to be present, even if it's a works righteousness that's not about trying to replace the gospel, but trying to add things to it. Trying to add our own works to, yes, that is the gospel, but I should add a couple of my own things to it. I mean, that's just what these men from the circumcision party were trying to do. They were presenting what I'm going to call a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus uh, obedience to the law. But you see all through the Bible, and Paul is explicit about this in Galatians, believing in turning to uh, another gospel is turning to no gospel at all. It's no gospel not at all. And that's exactly what a Jesus plus gospel is. It is no longer good news. So that's a call to gospel purity. Next I want us to see from our passage a call to gospel freedom. This is where when we come back to that same question William Wallace asked to those men standing on the battlefield at Sterling, what will you do without freedom is so important. For the one that knows that they're enslaved, there could be no more important question than to know, okay, how do I gain my freedom? It's only the people who've never been slaves or who've forgotten what it's like to be a slave that think that's an unimportant question. A call to gospel freedom, that's a part of actually all of the speeches that are given, these four guys that Luke shows us, but Peter is the most explicit about it. Look what he says in verse 9 and following. He says, He, that is God, made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, using that whole language of a yoke to describe this Jesus plus gospel, I think that's incredibly significant, actually. First of all, because talking about placing a yoke, if you've never seen this, it's a large wooden beam many times or a piece of iron that holds two animals together. They're tied into it so they can pull a plow. By using that language of a yoke, putting it on people, uh, already I think that's meant to communicate a picture in our minds of carrying a heavy burden as well as being uh, uh, held, being enslaved to something or someone. I think that's intentional by, by Peter. Jesus used the exact same Language in Matthew, 20, Matthew 23, stating this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they are not willing to lift a finger to help move them. Second reason I think this is significant that he talks about a yoke, referring to a Jesus plus gospel, is because of what Peter then says about that same yoke as it relates to the Jews in verse 10. Look there again. He reminds them, listen, guys, in our entire history as God's people, from Abraham even up until now, have we ever been able to even carry this burden ourselves? Could we do it? And he says, then why in the world would we ask the Gentiles to take on a system of trying to earn acceptance for God that we've already proved isn't possible? Peter's whole point to his Jewish audience here is requiring circumcision, requiring dietary laws for the Gentiles. It's contrary to the gospel of freedom. Why? Because we weren't saved by doing those things either. 
We see James later in verse 13 through 18 proving from the scriptures how the Gentiles had very clearly been included in this family just as they were. But I don't know if it stood out to you. What's striking to me as I read through that is how little we hear from Paul and Barnabas. They just get one verse. They just said, oh, they they told about what God had done among the Gentiles through them. But I'll tell you what, as it relates to the yoke uh, of the law in general and circumcision in particular, Paul's got a lot to say about that, uh, which we read through many of his other letters. I'll give you one notable example, Romans 4. Paul goes all the way back to the beginning of God's people, Abraham in the book of Genesis, and he asks a, a simple but devastating question to this whole idea of the yoke. He says, when God called Abraham and, and then he believed God, he believed his promise that through him he was going to create this people as numerous as the stars in the sky. When he did that and Abraham believed him and it was credited to his righteousness, was he seen as righteous in God's eyes? Was he saved before he was circumcised or after? When was it? And then he answers his own question, just in case they'd forgotten. He says very clearly, emphatically, it was not after, but before. His point is simple. We already know circumcision isn't required to be saved. It's not required to be righteous before God because we know Abraham, the father of Israel, was made righteous before he was circumcised. And if it wasn't required or necessary for salvation, then it isn't now either. This is so important for us to understand today in our own lives. We always need to work to maintain and preserve this gospel freedom, both in our own witness as well as in our own lives. In our own witness, we need to preserve this gospel freedom because telling people a gospel of salvation that's not about grace, that's not about faith, it's no longer good news. You're not presenting anything new or different if you're not presenting a gospel of grace to people. It's just, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about barriers to the gospel. We talked about how uh, pastor and author Tim Keller had pointed out so perfectly that today in our modern system of our modernity, when, when you come to someone, you tell them to come to Jesus. Let me teach you about Christianity. Almost invariably, all they hear is, come and take on my set of rules and regulations in my religion. That's what they hear. They basically just hear you saying, hey, would you come to church on Sunday? I want to put a big, heavy wooden yoke on you that I actually can't even carry myself. Service time's at 10. I hope you see you there. Are you going to show up for that? And as I said, if you can't show someone the difference between the gospel and religion, that Jesus is the one who completes the rules and regulations for you, it's no longer good news, and nobody's going to see it as good news that will free them from the self-salvation and slavery that we're all under. Secondly, we need to preserve gospel freedom in our own lives because the minute we stop telling ourselves the gospel of salvation by grace alone, we put that yoke of slavery back on our necks that Jesus has already freed us from. We return to a gospel plus, a Jesus plus gospel, that's not good news for anyone. I don't know what generation you grew up in. I know most of you are around my age, a little older, a little younger. But I'll tell you, growing up in my Sunday school years, my youth group years, not always, but often, 
I was presented with a Jesus plus gospel. I'm seeing nodding heads. You too? Okay. I, I, over and over, I would hear that a Jesus plus gospel, uh, 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 you are, are saved by Jesus' uh, death on the cross alone. You're saved from all your sins, Jesus' death on the cross alone. And not smoking or, or drinking, swearing, going to rated R movies, not those things too. I, listen, I, I believe that that was absolutely well-intentioned. And there's no question, there's great wisdom in restricting uh, our interaction with those things and being wise. But I need you to hear me. I need you to know this in the core of your being. And Christian parents, we need our children and our youth to know this as well. That is not the gospel. The minute you add anything to it, it's not the gospel anymore. And listen, as much as we'd all like to protect our kids from making the same dumb mistakes we did growing up, Jesus paid for all of your sins through his death on the cross, and make sure you don't drink beer is not the gospel anymore. You've made it no longer the gospel by saying that. Now hear me, I, I hear me very clearly, please. I, I'm not suggesting, hey, after church, let's head out and get some beer and cigarettes for your kids on the way to the picnic because, hey, we're all free in Christ. Let's get after it. That's not what I'm saying. Maya, Sophia, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that you need to know. You need to know and be reminded and know in the core of your being and our kids need to know if we are free in Christ, if we are free, it is never based on your own behavior. It's based on Jesus' behavior alone, period. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of freedom that we need to preserve and maintain. Anything more you add to that, fill in your own blanks. I'm sure you could all do it. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus uh, uh, reading your Bible, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus tithing. I'm saying this as a Baptist. Jesus plus baptism. No. Baptism is a testimony of your salvation. It's not what saves you. If you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are my brother and sister now. And I want you to be baptized, to testify to it. Whatever it is, whatever we'd add, any Jesus plus gospel, that's no longer any gospel at all. So that's why we need to preserve that gospel freedom. That's a call to gospel purity, a call to gospel freedom. The last thing I want us to see from our pastors is a call to gospel freedom. A call to gospel, sorry, a call to gospel community. We just did freedom. A call to gospel community. This is important for us to look at it because it helps us understand what I saw on your faces when, in verse 19, James said, yes, you're right. We shouldn't try to put any of these uh, uh, Jewish customs on the Gentiles who are coming to faith, but then in the very next verse, he outlines four Jewish customs that he wants them to follow. Uh, so I'm like, but didn't he just say, okay, here's what you need to know. First of all, all of those things listed that James lists there in his speech and in the letter to the Gentiles, these are ceremonial laws related to cleanliness outlined for the Jews in Leviticus 17 and 18. These are four ways that they remain ceremonially clean. 
So that's what he's outlining there. Second thing you seem to see is that these things being listed are not mandated. He's not saying you need these things in order to be our brothers. He doesn't say that. In fact, you see in verse 29, he even presents this list as just things they'll do well to avoid. If something is imperative to salvation, you don't say, hey, you should just try to avoid it. You say, you, you need to do this. He says, you, you would do well to avoid these things. Why? What, do, what does that all mean? Well, theologian John Stott is very helpful here in understanding the implications of this as it relates specifically to gospel community. He writes this, The abstinence here from these things must be understood not as an essential Christian duty, this is not requirements for salvation, but as a concession to the consciences of others, i.e. Jewish converts who still regarded such foods as unlawful and abominable in the sight of God. Which means that what we have here in this letter from the church in Jerusalem, it's a call to gospel community. It's a call to deeper family relationships now that these two groups who used to be opposed to each other truly are family. Look at the intentionality and and the extension of community extended in this letter to the Gentile churches there. Verse 23, starting off, the apostles and elders, your brothers. Start off there, you're, you're family. You're our brothers. Verse 24, that's where we see uh, them basically pointing out the fact that those men who came from Judea saying that they were from James, he's pointing out, okay, those guys, I didn't send them. That wasn't me. Those, they were troubling you. I didn't send those people. They were not coming with our authority. So he's seeking to correct these wrongs, make reparations where there's been misunderstanding. Verse 26 and 27, we see them showing the care with which they're sending this letter. They're sending their very best to deliver this letter. Paul and Barnabas, these men who risked their lives for Jesus, and some of our best leaders, we're sending it to them to deliver you by hand. We're not sending some kid on a 10-speed bike to courier to you and drop it off at the door, hope you get it. We want you to see in our faces. Yeah, read the letter. We want you to hear from our mouths and see the concern in our eyes. You're our brothers. We want gospel community. And again, verse, those requests, verse 29, are saying, we want deep, true community with you. As our brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to eat with you. We want to stay with you and you with us. But in order to do that, would you, would you be willing to consider the sensibilities of some of us right now whose religious customary upbringing forbids us from eating certain foods, being around certain things? Could you work with us? To do that, when we head out for lunch after church to head to White Spot, can you not order the bacon cheeseburger right now? Can you not get the pork chop special? We're working this out right now. Can you extend this community to us? It's it's truly a beautiful, gracious call, both the gospel community as well as gospel charity. It's something that both Peter and Paul pick up on their own letters all through the New Testament, especially as it relates to how gospel freedom and gospel community fit together. For instance, uh, they both talk about celebrating our freedom in Christ that we have, but being careful to use that freedom to serve the needs of others, not to indulge our own needs and desires. Elsewhere, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul gives a long description in this treatment of this theme, talking about the necessity of giving up our freedom. Actually, letting go of our freedom in order to protect the consciences of a weaker brother. Bottom line is this, yes, 
The gospel frees us from a merit-earning-based salvation, which is good news because we couldn't earn it. That's great news. But the minute you exercise that gospel freedom in such a way that it violates gospel community, well, you're now abusing your gospel freedom and you're no longer celebrating it. If it hurts your brother, if it hurts, uh, it causes them to sin, it's no longer gospel freedom anymore because you've destroyed gospel community. But let's do someone with a, maybe perhaps a more sensitive conscience and you're like, all right, that's great. There's some things I want to talk with you about after service. Wait, because the opposite applies to you as well. Because you could just as easily abuse gospel community and use it in such a way that pushes forward your preferences on things, your own personal convictions, but then, in doing so, actually violates your brother or sister's gospel freedom. Responsibilities on both of us. In the end, wherever you land, I think what we see in our passage here is a call to both sides to do what Paul clearly states at the end of his letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens. Both of you, both sides, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of freedom. We do that by bearing one another's burdens, which is just saying, hey, now that we are family, we're family, can you bear with us as we figure out what this whole new thing looks like? And we're going to bear with you as well. That, that's what gospel community looks like. I pray that's what we see here in our own church community today. We've got people from all different cultures and nations, different spiritual maturity levels, all kinds of things going on. May we be a place where we bear with one another's burdens, where we guard both gospel freedom and gospel community in a way that sees our witness come forward and maintain a gospel purity. As I was studying through this passage, it struck me a number of times that for all the talk of gospel freedom, not putting yokes and burdens on people, what I found it, for me is what one of the most beautiful and comforting calls in all the New Testament from Jesus is actually to put a yoke on. It's good. And, and even more unbelievable, Jesus tells people who are already weary and burdened and heavy laden to put a yoke on them. He's like, I want you to take this yoke and put it on you. It doesn't make sense to our minds until you understand. And if you've ever known and found rest for your own soul, in Jesus' words, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does he do that? Because he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why you can say that to weary and heavy laden people. Why? Because when you put your faith in Jesus, you become inseparably yoked with him for all time. You're tied in with him and you're held there. You, 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 you can't flee and he's not going to let go of you. You're tied in. But once that happens, from that point on, if you think about it, just put this picture in your mind. If on one side, you've got one of God's sheep, one of God's sheep tied in to this yoke on the one side, and then on the other side, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who do you think does the majority of the pulling in that arrangement? It's Jesus. 
Family, this, this is what an empowered witness looks like. Yeah, yeah, you're working alongside Jesus, but he's doing all the pulling. His Spirit is the one enabling us. That's why Paul and Barnabas keep coming back and saying, look what the Spirit did through us, not what we did. It's what St. Augustine talked about when he described his relationship with Jesus as being a love for one to whom service is perfect freedom. It's perfect freedom because he's doing all the pulling. So I come back to the question we began with. What will you do without freedom? What will you do without this freedom that we need to fight to preserve? Well, if our passage is any indication, what you'll do is you'll develop a Jesus plus gospel where you'll spend the rest of your life trying to earn that freedom. What will you do with it? What will you do with the freedom that Jesus has already won for you? You'll rest. You'll rest. Let's pray. I'd ask at this time, those of you helping me to serve communion, if you would come forward as well. Father in heaven, we come before you as your children. We're asking right now that you would impress upon us in these moments the freedom that we have in you. But God, there are times that we absolutely abuse that freedom and in so doing we destroy the community. We just destroy the family that you put together. Would you forgive us? God, would you cause us to be those who would surrender our freedom for the sake of our brother and sister? Would you cause us to be those who would champion the gospel community in such a way that we also preserve each other's freedom? And above all, would you cause us to be those who keep the gospel pure? We don't add to it and so destroy its freedom. We ask this for Christ's sake and for your glory. Amen.